Hey, everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. You know, I've always liked stories of culture shock, and this is one of my favorites. It's the linguist Daniel Everett describing his first visit to the Pitaha people in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. I just arrived in the village one afternoon, uh, about December 10th, 1977, surrounded by these people making noises that I knew was a language, but it just didn't make any sense to me at all. I was airsick. I felt horrible. It was extremely hot. And a fellow called me over to the fire to show me very proudly this 20-pound rodent called a paca that he was cooking on the fire, and its tongue was hanging out, and blood was dripping down on the ground, and I was trying not to throw up, and at the same time trying to show him that I was so excited that he had killed this great piece of meat. Yes, the going was tough at first, but Dan survived and adapted. He even learned to express his appreciation of charred rodent meat and other amenities of Pitaha culture, which he came to love and respect. And that is not exactly how things were supposed to go down. I should explain that when Dan Everett came to the Pitaha, it was as a missionary. He was this young, idealistic Christian who wanted to save some souls and spread the gospel. But the Pitaha ended up flipping the script on him. They taught him a lot more about their ways than he ever taught them about his. And because of them, he wound up bagging that whole missionary thing and discovered his true calling, linguistics. He became the world expert on the Pitaha language which is really quite something, according to Dan Everett. It is so strange, he says, that it breaks basic rules that some linguists had thought were universal in human languages. And by some linguists, I mean Noam Chomsky, the guy who many consider the ultimate authority on these matters. So here we have Dan Everett coming out of the jungle, challenging the big dog of linguistics theory. Well, that set off something of a ruckus in linguistic circles, as you can imagine, and it even attracted the attention of the mainstream media, of which I was a part. I did a radio piece on Dan Everett for NPR in 2007. But I never did air this longer interview that I'm going to be featuring today, uh, and that was the basis of that NPR report. I've decided to broadcast it now because Dan Everett has a new book out giving his views on the origins of language, And I'm going to be talking to him about that on the next 7th Avenue Project. So I thought, as a lead-up to that interview, I would play this earlier one. It's not just good background on how Dan arrived at his current position on language. It's just a great story in its own right. And we're going to start here when Dan was in his late teens, growing up in California. In the late 60s, I lived in uh, San Diego. I had moved up from Imperial Valley, California, and was involved in the hippie movement, and I was probably uh, smoking marijuana every day and taking acid about three or four times a week and uh, playing music all the time. Played in a couple of uh, good bands around San Diego and uh, was interested in in making a career in music. And at some point you got uh, drawn into Christianity. How was that and what kind of Christian uh, milieu or movement are we talking about? Well, I met a fellow at uh, high school who had a Brazilian magazine, and I could tell it was a language like Spanish, but it wasn't quite Spanish, so I asked him about this, and he said, oh, my parents are missionaries in Brazil. And when I was a little boy, I had to go to Sunday school, and we heard from a missionary once, and I thought that sounded like a really cool way to spend your life, helping other people, and I didn't fully understand the implications of being a missionary. So he invited me to church with him one Friday night, and uh, I went, but I was high on acid when I went to the church, 
And, and the pastor came up and he could see that I was clearly, I was sitting on the rug in the back of the church and he could see I was clearly not uh, paying much attention. So he said, why don't you come back sometime when you're not high? So I did. And I went back with Steve and his family and really liked the environment. I liked their family. I liked the fact that they were giving themselves to something besides the acquisition of material goods, giving themselves for another people, it seemed to me. And I wanted to know more about it. And so they told me about their missionary commitment and what it was like to be a missionary. And it all sounded very good. So I became a Christian. I stopped using drugs from one day to the next, never used them again, and went off to the Bible school uh, was the next step, and then after that, eventually to the missionary field. So what year was this that uh, you made that leap into Christianity? It was uh, October 4th, 1968. I remember the day very well, and it was a a huge move for me. My father, who was a cowboy and barroom brawler, just couldn't believe that suddenly his son had gotten religion, and I was going to church uh, every Sunday and on Wednesday nights and involved with his family, and uh, my life changed dramatically. Now, now I would think that the the goals of the missionaries in terms of helping people around the world would have fit well with sort of hippie counterculture beliefs. But the part of the church that represents the opposite of the counterculture, the straight-laced part, the strict part, was that a, a 180 for you, or was that um, something that felt like a natural transition? Well, actually, the the first church that I got involved in, and with my uh, this missionary family who eventually became my in-laws since I married their daughter, they weren't straight-laced at all. They had a very healthy attitude about other races and other cultures and other ways of being. The pastor at the church that we went to wore a gold sequin Nehru jacket and drove a jacked-up hearse with organ pipe speakers. So this was a very different kind of church from what you often associate with with Christianity, evangelical Protestant Christianity in the U.S. So initially it was a tremendous change in the direction that I thought my life needed to go, away from materialism, giving myself for other people. It seemed like an extremely generous, altruistic way to spend your life. Mm -hmm. What was your um, image of what you wanted to do as a missionary? Did you have a kind of, I don't know, maybe even a fantasy image of what you would do, what it would be like? I expected to spend the rest of my life in obscurity, in the jungle, working with the people that, that wanted a better life and that they would welcome my Christian message. They were just dying, going to hell, and completely lost, and I would arrive there, and I would bring them their salvation, and they would gratefully receive it from me, and I would spend the rest of my life dedicated to their well-being. Let's uh, now jump forward to the time around 1977. I'd like to hear how you got to Brazil, how you met your wife, and then how you decided and then followed through in your idea of um, ministering to the Pidaha. Well, I met my wife in 68, right about the time that I started going to this church. She was very instrumental in converting me. Uh, She was a very attractive young woman, and I was really interested in her, and and I was interested in the whole religion thing, and she talked to me about becoming a Christian, and she said, "You, you know, you need to go to church, and I said, well, I think I am a church. But through her conversations with me and her entire family, I became a Christian. Uh, and, and so we got married in 1970 when I was, we were both 18, and we started our family when we were both 19. So let's talk about how you wound up in Brazil and how you made your way to the, the Pitaha settlements. When we joined the missionary group that we went with, Wycliffe Bible Translators, also known as the Summer Institute of Linguistics, 
they play an active role in assigning you to work with a particular tribal group. We told them that we wanted to work in Brazil because Karen had grown up there uh, and she spoke Portuguese, and I was interested in the Amazon. So they said, you can come to Brazil, but um, there's really only one place that we have that we we want to put somebody right now, and that's with this group of people that no one's been successful with. No one's really figured out how the language works. No one's learned to speak the language well, and they're called the Pitaha. And if you're willing to take up that challenge, um, and there's a lot of malaria there, there are a lot of problems, then we w we would be willing to let you come to Brazil. And so we said, yeah, sure, we'll take up the challenge. We didn't even know what we were committing ourselves to, but it sounded exciting to go someplace that had broken other people. So there's, there's a little feeling of uh, Christian heroics in all of this. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You wanted to be a martyr for your faith. I certainly thought that I was going to give my life, and, and if I gave my life in obscurity, uh, and we had a number of harrowing experiences in which we almost lost our lives, and, and we were totally prepared for that. What sort of experiences? Well, the first time we went to the village, uh, my wife and uh, daughter, my oldest daughter, Shannon, got falciparum malaria, and we hadn't had experience with this kind of malaria before. So I didn't recognize it as malaria because they got fevers of 104 that didn't change, and they were just like that for days. So finally, when I realized that Karen was going into a coma after a lot of delusion and hallucinations, and Shannon was just constantly moaning in pain, I had to decide to get them out of the village, but I had never made the river trip before because we just flew into the village. Uh, so I, I borrowed an aluminum canoe from a Catholic priest who was in the area, and he left himself stranded so I could put my family in this small little canoe with a six-horsepower motor and take off to I didn't even know where looking for help. It took us almost a week to get out of the village um, by getting help from a number of people. And when I got out to the city, the doctor said, well, you know, your wife's going to die in a few hours. It's too late. She weighs 76 pounds, and her blood pressure is almost non-existent. She's in a coma. If she has relatives, you should call them. So people started praying around the world, uh, literally around the world, through Wycliffe Bible Translators Network. And she, after about three months, uh, came, came back to full health. But it took quite a while. It was quite a bit of recovery time. That was just one incident, and that was our first trip to the village. Now, now tell me about that first contact with the Pitaha, I mean, your first contact with them. Well, I went there in December of 1977. The missionary group that I was with had put an airstrip in one of the Pitaha villages, and they were prepared to fly me. It was a one-hour and 45-minute flight from the missionary compound to the Pitaha village, which was like going from one world to another very quickly. So one other missionary went with me who knew the Pitaha but didn't speak any of their language. And I just arrived in the village one afternoon, uh, about December 10th, 1977, surrounded by these people making noises that I knew was a language, but it just didn't make any sense to me at all. And I remember I, w I was airsick. I felt horrible. It was extremely hot. And a fellow called me over to the fire to show me very proudly this 20-pound rodent called a paca that he was cooking on the fire, and its tongue was hanging out, and blood was dripping down on the ground, and I was trying not to throw up, and at the same time trying to show him that I was so excited that he had killed this great piece of meat. Um, so the first few days uh, were difficult physically, but on the other hand, I started applying linguistic methodology and, and started learning bits of the language so that by the time I left, 
10 days later, after this initial visit, I already knew quite a few Pinaha phrases, and I was starting to, I knew a little bit about the language. How did you manage that? I mean, this is a language that is not related to any languages you had studied, is that correct? It's not related to any other known living language. And so you start off, I've written chapters and books about this now on how to do linguistic research monolingually when there's no ling language spoken in common. And I'm not the one who pioneered this. Other linguists before me had worked like this. Uh, but you start off, maybe pick up a stick. And so I would point to the stick and say to the Pitaha, stick. And then because we're humans and humans share a lot of expectations together, uh, they would say back to me, I and I figured that I must mean stick. I would let the stick drop to the ground. And they would say, I migikalbe. And I would write that down and say, probably means stick falls to the ground. Then I got the word ground, which is migi. And I, so I knew the word I and the word migi. So I figured kalbe must be fall. And um, after a while, I began to piece together parts of the language like this. And that's pretty much what you do over a period of years to analyze the language, and you come up with hypotheses and different ways of testing it. There's no magic formula. It's extremely time-consuming and very difficult, and I think that all my years in music helped train my ears so that I could hear the tones, I could hear the consonants and vowels really well, and, and I, I think I imitated them very well from the start. The, the missionary group had already um, built an airstrip, they already had people before you working on the Pitaha, is that right? That's right. The missionary group started working with the Pitaha in 1959, and people worked there from 1959 to 1967 continually. They left without having figured out much of, about the language. They had learned a few things. Then another couple came in with their children and stayed from 1967 to 1976. They also abandoned the group because it was too difficult uh, among other reasons. They also had health problems, and, and uh, both the missionaries before us were promoted to the directorship of the mission organization in Brazil. And so when we came in in 77, uh, I asked the previous missionaries, how much of your material should I try to use to learn from? And they said, well, you're welcome to all of it, but we I just don't have a clue how the language works. You're probably better off to start from scratch. So that's exactly what I did. What was the response of the Pidaha to these people who had been coming and uh, living with them uh, from the outside since the 50s, trying to convert them to Christianity, trying to learn their language? What, what was their take on all this? The Pidaha welcomed the attention, and they welcomed the social help that the missionaries provided, the uh, antibiotics that helped them and the anti-malarial medicine. When, when the first missionary got there, the Pinaha were suffering from a measles epidemic. Probably 20% of the population died within the year. And the Pinaha tell me to this day, when I show them pictures of this initial missionary, some of the older men start crying. And they said, when we were so sick that we could not get up off the ground, we were just laying on the ground and no one could hunt, he went into the jungle and hunted all night long, and he would come back with food, he would cook the food, he would put it in our mouths and help us chew it. Um, you know, they would show how he would take their chins and move their chins up and down to help them chew it. And they said, we would all be dead if it weren't for him. So he, he made a fantastic contribution to the people. So they never took as very important the religious part of what they were trying to do, but they took as extremely important, and they deeply appreciated the social aspect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're tuned to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. 
Today, missionary-turned-linguist Dan Everett talks about his life with the Pitaha people, a remote Amazonian tribe. And I do mean remote. If you took out all the country boundaries of South America and just looked at the Amazon rainforest, right in the middle of the Amazon is where the Pitaha are located. They're on the river called the Maisi, which is a tributary of the Marmelos, which is a tributary of the Madeira, which is then a tributary of the Amazon. And if you go there by river, which is the way that my family has usually gone there, it takes about four to six days from the nearest city to get to the Pitaha. And you have to, so we would go in for six to eight months as a family. And that meant taking supplies to last a family of five, six months in the jungle. Did you ever develop a taste for paca? Yeah, actually I did uh, make uh, paca tacos. And uh, we eat all the animals the Indians kill. We, we wound up eating a lot of things we never thought we'd eat. These guys must be incredible with bows and arrows. I've never seen a grown man miss anything that he shoots at. So if you watch movies like Indiana Jones, um, where you have all these uh, natives running after them, shooting arrows and missing, one Pitaha man running behind them would have riddled them all with arrows. Uh, they wouldn't have gotten away from one man. Uh, I've seen little boys shoot bows and arrows with their feet and hit lizards running uh, 20 feet away, small little lizards. Incredible uh, skill with the bow and arrow. You say riddled him with arrows, so they not only get off highly accurate shots, but a lot of shots. Yeah, I, I was telling this story to, to uh, somebody who was visiting me one time about how I'd never seen a Pitaham male miss anything he shot at. And, and suddenly a guy goes running by us and gets in a canoe and goes out to the middle of the river and fires three shots in rapid succession off the bow of the canoe. And then you start seeing the arrows writhe in the water, and he just goes along and picks up three fish because he had seen these fish. He could tell that there was a school of fish going by, so he ran down and shot three fish. Uh, he didn't miss one of them. And I'm sure there's many other stories of skills. When I was young, I read uh, The Forest People by Colin Turnbull. All right. And, you know, that's a, such a powerful book to read, yeah. you know, when you're, especially when you're young. And the, yeah. The stories of the humanity of the pygmies and also their skills. You mm -hmm. know, those two things really struck me. Right. Well, I read that in my first anthropology class in, in junior college. And um, now having known the Pitaha, they exemplify all the best characteristics, even the idealized characteristics that some of us as Westerners have of tribal groups. They are incredibly self-sufficient, uh, the best survivalists. I know a Pitaha by himself in the jungle can come back uh, in great shape of, you know, after spending days alone in the jungle. And, and in terms of their peacefulness and their happiness, I just have never read about or experienced, and I've worked with over 24 different Amazonian groups, anything like them. They numbered in the tens of thousands, you know, roughly, in the 18th century. That's right. The estimates that were made in publications and, and uh, journal entries by Catholic missionaries that went there in the 1700s estimated the population of the Muda and the Pitaha together at over 60,000 people. And within a few years, the Muda, who spoke the same language as the Pitaha, roughly, a few, it's like the difference between British and American English, the Muda were a very aggressive nation, and so were the Pitaha the, in, on a different river system. And so uh, Brazilians began to pay other Indians, the Munduruku, to exterminate 
the uh, Muda, and they armed them with shotguns. And so here's another Indian tribe with all the same skills, but now armed with shotguns, and and they they almost wiped the Muda out. In fact, the current population of the Muda, which has come up quite a bit in the last 70 or 80 years, is about 3,000 people. And the Pitaha, when we entered there in about in 1977, I estimated the population at about 150. Really? Yeah. So it's up. Yeah, the population is going up. And that's partially because of the medical work that missionaries did and largely because of the new emphasis, it's about six or seven years old, that the Brazilian government has put in offering health care to all the tribal groups of Brazil, even the most isolated. So the Brazilian government has been making lots of trips, uh, sending their health agency to the Pitaha to vaccinate them against the measles, to vaccinate them against a number of other diseases, give them flu shots, and and just supervise their health in general. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you described the, the journey upriver that it took to get to them in the old days. Has that changed? Um, I've been, you know, reading your writings and also uh, listening in on some of your lectures and things like that, like the one at MIT. And one of those, uh, you mentioned that the Trans-Amazonian Highway goes not too far from the... So that means that you can you can just drive. Well, we can't drive all the way there, but we switched from working with villages that are near the mouth of the Mycenae to villages that have been more isolated. So there's a village that we can reach in two days from the nearest city by driving out the Trans-Amazon Highway, which is in fact just a dirt road, driving out there to the Mycenae River, putting our boat in the water, and then from there it's about 13 hours descending the river to the Pitaha. So it takes us a day to get to the river and another day to get from the river to the village. So it's a little easier. Oh, it's much easier, much easier. than the than the week long boat trip, which was very difficult. And 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 is that a threat to the the Pitaha as you see it? The, the accessibility, the encroachment of absolutely more and more people are coming. Uh, even the the goodwill of people uh, from the government say they've built a big clinic uh, among the Pitaha, and that clinic has a useful role, but it disrupts the culture. So it, it really is difficult to say when you've got too much outside influence and. Um, I, I've decided not to work in that particular village anymore because my presence there is what attracted all these, uh, such as the government and other people, to work in this village because I could translate for them, and they can't speak Pitaha. So my current plan when I go back is just to uh, rent a boat that I can live on and visit different villages and do research and then leave them and leave no permanent structure or any kind of disruption in the village. Mm. But it's very difficult the way the, ac- the access has gotten so much easier over the years. Okay, that was the linguist Dan Everett describing the situation of the Pitaha tribe in the Brazilian rainforest today. But I want to get back to that earlier part of Dan's story when he was still a missionary hoping to convert the Pitaha to Christianity. I hadn't done any real missionary work yet because I didn't feel like I understood the language well enough. And and Wycliffe Bible Translators does not want people telling the indigenous groups about their faith until they've passed a number of tests to show that they can speak the language well enough to explain that clearly. So they don't want a bunch of half-baked stories circulating through the tribes. But in 1980, I had mentioned the word Jesus to them a couple of times and said, you know, uh, I'm here because I left my family, and I'm here with you because I want to tell you about Jesus. So in 1980, a group of men came into the house, and they said, we really like you. We know why you're here. 
you left your family, you want to tell us about Jesus, that's the reason the other two guys were here, and we like you and we like to help you give us, but we don't want to hear about that. That's not part of us, that's not who we are. We want to do what we do, and we don't want any any other person thinking that they can tell us to be different. And that was very important to me, and it took a lot of the wind out of my sails and a lot of the interest in, in sharing, as I as you would put it, sharing the gospel with these people, uh, because they simply didn't want it. And if they didn't want it, why was I, why was I there? So I focused mainly on linguistic work until I felt like I was also being deceptive to the churches that were giving money to convert these people. And so I was, I was also beginning to question my faith at this time. The people didn't want the gospel. I had thought they would be standing there with open arms to receive it, but in fact they, didn't, they weren't interested in it at all. The churches wanted reports about how many converts we were getting, and I felt that I was getting caught in a very tight squeeze, and I wasn't sure what to do about it. Um, the way you just told it, they talked to you and said, we, we like you, but we don't need to know any more of this uh, religious stuff that you're promoting. But there was also this process where you were trying to tell them, and they were saying, asking for proof and asking for, for validation. Right. Tell me about that. So. When we learned the language well enough to know, so even after they told me in 1980 they didn't want to hear, the re my response was to move to another village and start telling those people. And then I would tell them uh, about Jesus. We'd show film strips um, of the Bible stories and try to explain the Bible lands and what happened and that Jesus died and then he came, he came back from the dead. And at first they thought this was astounding. You know, a guy died and he came back from the dead? That's amazing. We've never seen anything like that. So what did he tell you when he came back from the dead? Well, I didn't actually see him. I mean, the, oh, you didn't see it. But who, who did see it that told you about it? Well, nobody that I've ever talked to saw it either. And so then they said, well, why are you telling us about it? I mean, you didn't see it, and you don't know anybody who saw it. We're not sure about this. I mean, and so, so they, were, they lost interest in the story completely. They couldn't even understand the point of telling them the story. I mean, they would also ask me things others would say. So does Jesus look more like us or does he look like you? Is he brown skin or is he light skin? I'd say, well, you know, I've never seen him. And again, I couldn't even answer the most basic questions about his humanity or where he lived or what his parents were like or anything. It just So one day a Pinaha came to me and he said, um, you know, we've talked a lot about this and this was another village. This was completely, and, and you know, we don't like this story about Jesus. I mean, you've never seen him, and uh, you don't know anybody who's seen him, and, and uh, so we really don't want to hear about this. Hmm. Tell me about the, the Pitaha sensibility that, that asks these questions, that demands these answers. Well, the Pitaha have a very important cultural value, and if you listen to them talk in the evenings around the fires, if you record stories from them, if you see the things that concern them during the day, it's, it's about immediate experience. Immediate experience is, is where the, what they're focused on. And I don't want to trivialize it by using American expressions that don't quite capture the values, but you might say they live in the now. Uh, some people would say, well, I might put it that way. But So their focus is on immediate experience and, and things of practical value. And this also has the implication that they talk about things that they've got evidence to talk about. Because if you're talking about things for which you have no evidence, you're moving beyond your experience. You're talking about the experiences of other people. And who am I to make any kind of judgments about the veracity of claims of other people that, that I don't know or that have died long ago or 
that didn't even see the facts themselves. So the Pitaha can be considered, in, in some sense, as a culture, ultimate empiricists. Uh, they, they just demand evidence for anything that you say. And, and if you watch the way they talk to themselves, th they're the same way. They, they ask everyone, well, where, did you, where were you when this happened and what happened? When? They have suffixes on their verbs, for example, that indicate the nature of the evidence for any assertion. So there's one suffix that means that they saw it directly. There's another suffix that says they overheard people talking about it and another suffix that indicates that they deduced it. So if you said, uh, where's John? Well, if they saw John leave, they will use the suffix that's direct observation. If somebody told them that John left, they'll use the suffix that is hearsay. And if they look down in the water and see John's canoe is missing, they'll use the suffix that indicates that they infer this. Eyewitness testimony, hearsay, and circumstantial evidence. That's right. They're natural lawyers. That's right. Their verbs have to have these suffixes. Wow. So under this cross-examination, um, how did you bear up? What was the effect on you? I, I had already began to learn from the Pitaha that they were extremely happy and well off without the message that I had for them. They had physical needs. They had disease. But they were a very happy people. In fact, you could make the case, and I did make the case to myself, that they seemed happier than most of the people in the churches that supported us to convert them. And so as they began to tell me that they didn't want this, and as they began to tell me that I didn't have evidence for these things, since I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I had this approach to religion myself at one time, I was fairly anti-religious before I converted, I began to think back on, yeah, you know, these are reasonable questions they're asking me. It's quite reasonable to ask for this kind of evidence, and I don't have this kind of evidence. There's an entire social network that's encouraged me to think this way, and that played a very useful role in getting me off drugs and getting me into a different way of life, that I am very grateful that I've had this experience but the supernatural aspect of all of that, I, it really is difficult to sustain that. So I began to question this very seriously, but I couldn't talk to anyone about it. I mean, I, I, was, in, I was telling my children about God, and I had told them always about God, and, and um, my relationship with my wife was, was based before anything else on a mutual commitment to God. So I knew that if I were to come to the conclusion that I could no longer believe in God, this was going to have serious repercussions for my personal life. Now, one answer that a person in your position might have given to them when they said, well, well who's this Jesus? Do you know him? Is, yes, I know him. I know him in my heart. I know him in my soul. Did you ever answer that way? And what response did you get? To the Pitaha, I knew that that's not what they were asking. And so for me to answer that way, I felt would be dishonest. I would be lying to them. When, I, when you show indigenous groups films like this famous Jesus film that's shown to indigenous groups around the world, it's difficult for them who haven't had a history of cinema to distinguish between fact and fiction. You're an outsider coming in with all of this wealth, all of these apparatus, and you're telling them this guy's real. Well, then why would they not believe you? But in fact, that's all dishonest. You show them a film that is actually fiction, and you tell them that it's fact. They believe you because of who you are and what you're saying and the power that you have. You can be very dishonest very quickly. And I realized that's not what they were asking me. So I couldn't give them um, a spiritualized answer like that. They wanted empirical evidence, and I didn't have any. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project. Today, ex-missionary, now linguist, Daniel Everett, 
and his life with the Pitaha Indians in the Amazon rainforest. And at this point in the interview, you may well be wondering what the Pitaha language actually sounds like. Well, here's an example. That's a recording that Dan made of a Pitaha man channeling a type of jungle spirit that the Pitaha call fast mouths. I won't even attempt to pronounce the Pitaha word for it. The man was channeling a female fast mouth, and if he sounded sort of melodious, that is because Pitaha is a tonal language. It uses musical pitch to communicate. It's often sung and sometimes even whistled and hummed. I asked Dan to demonstrate. Give me a little uh, taste of Pitaha in its spoken and, uh, if you can, its hummed or sung or whistled form. Okay. So let me. So we're out in the jungle, and I see a jaguar. Uh, I would say there's a jaguar there. And that's the spoken language with consonants and vowels. I could whistle it. Where all the tones and the syllables are represented in the, in the whistle speech. Or I can hum it, but I wouldn't hum this particular thing because humming has a different function. But I could say... Humming is usually used between mothers and children between couples for intimacy or when people are don't want you to overhear very well what they're saying, but they can communicate fine doing that. And and so all of these channels of discourse in Pinaha, whistle speech, hum speech, yell speech, uh, consonant and vowel speech, and musical speech, all of these have different functions. And so to even understand how uh, the sound system of the language works, you have to understand how the culture works. Wow. I like the one particular function I think you listed somewhere is being able to hum with your mouth full. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's a, great, it's, a great, uh, it's a great skill that we don't have in English. We don't have that ability to talk with our mouth full in English without risking choking. But are the, are the tones so unambiguous that, I mean, the tones can be applied to different syllables. Yeah. Are the tones so unambiguous that you just give me a tone and I can always translate it into to words? What happens is that there's more involved than the tones. In addition to the tones, you have the whistle speech contains the stress of the word. It contains the syllable weight of the word. So if I whistle again, pai, which means cat, uh, pai. that's three syllables. If I whistle it, you'll hear, <laughs> so there are three syllables. You can hear the syllables, you can hear the syllable length, you can hear the stress, and you can hear the tone. That is almost always enough. And if you needed more information, there's always the context in which you're saying these things. Pretty cool stuff. But it's the even stranger properties of the Pitaha vocabulary and grammar that really interests linguists like Dan Everett. And by the early 1980s, Dan had become a full-fledged linguist, getting his Ph.D. at the University of Campinas in Brazil. And like many linguists, he was heavily influenced by Noam Chomsky. Chomsky has had a gigantic impact on linguistics over the last 50 years. And his claim to fame is the idea that the fundamental structures of language, our basic language abilities, are built into our brains. They aren't learned, but they're part of our evolutionary inheritance, right there in our genome. Now, that does not mean we pop out of the womb speaking perfect English or Chinese 
or Pitaha. But according to Chomsky, we come equipped with all the tools in a kind of basic grammatical template called universal grammar. And when we learn a particular language, we're just sort of filling in the blanks. Now, at the same time that Dan Everett was becoming a scientifically-minded linguist, he was also losing faith in Christianity, which was really hard for him. It was about 1981, 1982, when I finally realized that I just don't believe, I really don't believe this stuff anymore. But I couldn't tell anyone. I mean, I suppose if I were morally more courageous, I could have told, but I didn't know what effect this was going to have on my children who had been raised a particular way. I didn't know what effect it would have on my marriage. I didn't, and I had no other means of support. I was a missionary. I was being supported to be a missionary. If I suddenly come out and say, I don't believe, what am I going to do with a PhD in linguistics? At the time, I seemed eminently unemployable. And, and I had no idea. So, um, I, I swallowed uh, uh, feelings of hypocrisy and continued on. And then I also had in the back of my mind, well, maybe this is just a phase. Maybe I'll come back to believe and, and, and get over this apostasy. And, and I hoped that I would. But as the months and years went by, I realized I just can't buy this story. And so finally, I, I started letting people know, first, that I didn't believe things literally. Uh, second, that I, I didn't believe that Indians were going to go to hell. And, and eventually that I just didn't believe the story at all. Tell me about announcing it uh, to those close to you. Well, the first person I told was uh, my wife. And this was probably at the end of the 90s that I finally, uh, you know, for more than 10 years. And, and I told her, I said, I just, I just don't believe this stuff anymore. I can't believe this. I, I'm really sorry. I'd like to believe it, but I can't believe it. And and she said, well, you know, you've got to tell your children. They have this high opinion of you, and it's based on a false perception, and they're not going to have the same opinion of you when you tell them. So I told all my children, yeah, I'm so, I, I really don't believe this anymore. I'm very sorry. You know? and, and so my children said, did you raise us as a hypocrite? You know, then you told us about all this stuff. And I said, I believed all of it when, I was, when you were little and I was telling you about it, but I don't believe it now. So my children... Had It was a difficult time for them. There was a period of time when they didn't communicate with me, but now we're very close again. But it was the end of my marriage. that My marriage never recovered from that. And, and my wife is still a missionary in Brazil and, and feels that, that I have turned my back on everything that was true and right and all the great things that happened to me after I converted, I've lost and I've forgotten about, and I'm being very ungrateful to God. You described it to me as a coming out. Yes, to tell people that you don't believe has got to be one of the most traumatic things you have to tell someone. And I have several gay friends, and, and as I've talked to them about this experience, they've described to me what it was like to tell their family and their friends that they were gay. And, and the more I've thought about it, that seems to be the best way to describe what it was. It's coming out. It's telling people this thing about yourself that they thought they knew you so well, and now it's like you're a different person, and they don't even know how to categorize you or perceive you anymore. So I've lost lots of friends. Most of the friends that I had when I was a missionary, I don't have anymore. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm getting other friends now, different friends who can accept me in this new role and this new sets of beliefs that I have. But, uh, but it was a very costly personal uh, admission that I didn't have faith. And, and friends of mine uh, who've told me about their experiences have gone through very similar things. At what point had you become not a missionary but a linguist? Or was that gradual? It was gradual, but by 1983, when I finished my Ph.D. dissertation, everything I wanted to do in my life professionally 
and and most of the personal satisfaction that I took out of life was be, being a professional linguist. And so in 1983, I finished my PhD dissertation. I told my wife, I want to see if I'm really a good linguist. I, I want to have a, a, an experience outside of Brazil. So I applied for a couple of uh, prestigious fellowships, and I applied for a year's visiting scholar status at MIT. And I got all of those, and so my office was next to Chomsky's for 1984-85. Wow. And I talked to uh, Chomsky a lot during the year and uh, other people who were at MIT, and I had full access to the, to the department there, and I was a very strong Chomsky and linguist. In fact, then later, when I was hired at the University of Pittsburgh in 1988, my first Ph.D. student uh, became a full professor at MIT in, in linguistics and brain and cognitive sciences. Is there a part of you then that felt like a wayward son when you parted ways with Chomskyism? It's interesting because I, I sort of came out about religion at the same time that I stopped doing Chomsky and linguistics. And I started teaching other theories at the university, at the University of Pittsburgh, where I was at the time, which caused a, created a lot of, uh, of uh, questions because uh, my colleagues had known me as a defender of Chomsky. And now I was teaching other theories and I wasn't talking so much about Chomsky. And, and as I think back on why did these two things sort of coincide, because both religion and Chomsky and linguistics have a concept that they're, they're looking for the truth or they know the truth with a capital T. And as I began to take more seriously the idea that we're evolved primates, we're just animals, telling the best stories we can tell to get ourselves through this world, as John Lennon said, whatever gets you through the night, um, it seems sort of silly to think that we could actually know what the truth is with a capital T. We can tell well-justified stories about the world that we're in, but we know that the next generation is going to have different stories than the stories we tell. There's no usefulness to talking about the truth, and I found that applied both to religion and to Chomsky and linguistics, and I wanted to, I wanted to explore alternative uh, ways of doing linguistics. Now, now tell me about the process, and again, maybe you know, map this onto the chronology. When you started making these discoveries about the Pitaha language that seemed to be surprising, unusual, and even, um, you know, even counter-Chomskyan. Well, there was no place to put those at the beginning. You know, so I, I, I was looking for the kinds of facts and analyses that would help me to interact more effectively with Chomsky's ideas because you built your career by publishing articles that extended Chomsky's ideas by showing this, these new data that no one else had found. And so I would go off to the field, I would discover data, I would say these data have significant theoretical implications for Chomsky's theory, but not in the sense that they falsified it, in the sense that they expanded it and enriched it and supported it. And so I would find out, I would find these curious facts, the lack of numbers, the uh, lack of comparatives, the lack of quantifier words, and I just sort of set them aside. There was no place to put them in the theory. And I think that's what a lot of scientists do, fortunately or unfortunately. I don't think there's any other alternative. We're trained to think about the world in a certain way. Things that don't fit that training are usually set aside. And it's only at times of either uh, career embarrassment or career advancement by making major discoveries that you actually turn back to those things that don't fit well into the theory and say something that you hope will be significant about them. Mm. So tell me about the, the particulars um, that you were observing in Pidaha that didn't fit 
the theory and, and the process by which you finally came to report them to the world that way? Well, the first thing I noticed was that there wasn't any, there was not a lot of strong evidence for what uh, Chomsky called recursion. There wasn't a lot of evidence that one phrase could be put inside another phrase, like John said that Bill will come. Bill will come as a phrase inside the phrase John said that. There didn't seem to be much evidence for this. I mean, I found one or two constructions that might look like that, but nothing compelling. And so I was at MIT when I was thinking this through. So I made an appointment. I talked to Chomsky. I said, I really can't find much evidence for this. And so he asked me a number of questions to help me think through this and what the implications would be. And the more I thought about it, it the implications also seemed to be that they didn't, they didn't have this. So, but I, I've set it aside. I didn't know how to deal with this fact. I mean, what am I going to say about this? It would entail saying that Chomsky's wrong. And who am I to say? I mean, I was just a little fish in a big ocean. Who am I to say that, that Chomsky's wrong about this stuff? So I let the facts sit. And who am I even to say that I'm absolutely right about the Peter Ha facts? So this was 1984. Then I noticed uh, the lack of numbers and the lack of grammatical number. And as I read, I found out these are really strikingly rare facts. And all of these things... Uh, just accumulated until about 19, um, well, actually it was, it was 2003, I had let all of these things accumulate and had, sent, had not said much about them until I was invited to speak at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig on Peter Hahn numbers. There was a conference on numbers in the world's languages, and I said, Peter Hunt doesn't have any numbers. And they said, well, by all means, come and tell us this and show us what you mean and explain this. And as I began to think about this, I said, well, you know, actually, Peter Hunt doesn't have a lot of things. And I, I was given a one-month uh, visiting uh, status at the Max Planck, and during that month, I, I thought all day, every day about these facts. And I wrote during that month this paper that I eventually published in Current Anthropology about uh, the unifying fact of immediate experience in Peter Ha and how it explains the lack of, of, of so many of these things that were very important. Let's just quickly have you summarize those characteristics of Peter Ha that are um, striking, unusual, rare, unique. Okay. It has uh, the simplest kinship system known. It has a, it has a term for the generation above, a term for uh, the same generation as the person speaking, a term for the generation below. It has a term for spouse, and it has a, and none of these are distinguished by gender. These are all gender neutral. And then it has two terms that are distinguished by gender for biological son and biological daughter. This is very strange to have such a simple kinship system. It had no numbers. It has no simple words for color. There's no one word that means blue or red or green or white or black in Pitaha. These are phrases. Uh, so you might, to, to describe red, you might say that looks like blood or that looks like uh, uh, an apple or, or for blue, that looks like water, that looks like the sky, that looks like a leaf. So their colors are descriptions and phrasal descriptions. They're not just words. They don't have words that mean exactly all, each, every, most. So uh, the Pinaha have words that mean similar things, but they're not exactly the same. And these are quantifier words. And philosophers such as Donald Davidson and linguists such as Anna Wierzbiska from Australia have said that all languages have to have these things to have a human language. But in fact, they don't have those things. Um, the, the lack of recursion was, was fundamental. Uh, looking further, they, they have the simplest inventory of sounds in the world. 
they have no creation myths and no fiction. And this really startled anthropologists to talk about a group that has no creation myths and no fiction. And, and as I began to piece all this together, what was the unifying theme? I came up with this idea that there's a sort of taboo about only talking about immediate experience. And all the, the numbers, the quantifiers, the recursion, all of, and the kinship system, all of these could be unified by saying that they only talk about things that they have seen directly during their lifetime or someone has reported to them who was alive at the time and they saw it. Let's uh, clarify those elements that are absolutely opposed to uh, contradict uh, Chomsky's idea of universal grammar. For Chomsky, the crucial component, more important than anything else, is recursion. In recent research, Chomsky has said, along with his colleagues Mark Hauser of Harvard and Tecumseh Fitch of St. Andrews University in Scotland, that the core of human language, perhaps the 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 only truly essential human characteristic of language is recursion. So when, if you can show that there's a language that has no recursion, you have shown a counterexample to that claim. Now, Chomsky has an answer to that, which is to say, well, the fact that it lacks it just means it's not using something that was provided. But that answer doesn't really work well because if a language can lack recursion, in principle, all languages can lack recursion. So now you have yourself in the position of saying this characteristic is crucial to human language, but in fact it doesn't have to appear in any human language, which is a strange claim. And then the other claim that's very difficult to reconcile with Chomsky in theory is the idea that culture is responsible for the absence of this fact, that the grammar is actually controlled by a cultural taboo. And there, this has no place in Chomsky's theory because Chomsky sees the grammar as specified in the human genome. The restrictions on our grammars are part of our genetics. So culture can't affect our genetics. You can't, the culture can't tell you to grow three arms. And, and for Chomsky, to say that culture could stop recursion is equivalent to say that culture could stop you from growing hair. You, you waited to publish this for quite a while. As I looked at all of these unusual facts about Peter Ha and began to, for the first time in my career, really try to come up with an explanation. I realized that if I said what I thought, which was that the culture was influencing the grammar and unifying all of these uh, cultural and grammatical facts in, under one explanation, that most linguists were going to think that I was crazy. Uh, this just didn't fit modern linguistic theory. And although I had built up quite a reputation uh, in linguistics, um, as, as a relatively credible scientist, I knew that this was going to be very difficult for people to accept. And has it been? It's caused a tremendous amount of criticism of me, of uh, people saying that I'm probably crazy. But on the other hand, a number of linguists have said, you know, we thought something like this was probably right, but we didn't want to be the first to say it. And so now you're getting people coming up with other examples from other languages in different parts of the world. And I've had this happen with my work before, where I've been the first to make this outlandish claim, and then other people say, well, as a matter of fact, I, I know similar facts. But is there a, a large community that's heavily invested in Chomsky and ideas? Is it... Um considered orthodoxy in linguistics, or is there a division in the linguistic world between the Chomskyans and the anti-Chomskyans? How, how is all that? Um, Chomsky is the most powerful person in linguistics today. 
He is probably more powerful than Einstein ever was in physics or any other scientist has ever been in any other discipline. There is a growing opposition to Chomsky's ideas, but the opposition is not particularly well unified. There are a number of linguists that don't find Chomsky's ideas useful. There are a number of linguists that find it completely wrong-headed, but there's no real unified opposition to Chomsky's views. That was the linguist Dan Everett speaking to me in 2007. Now, since then, Dan has come out with a new book presenting his own views of language and its origins, and I'm going to be talking to him about it next week right here on the 7th Avenue Project. Uh, Before we wrap up today, I just wanted to play a final bit from that 2007 interview where Dan describes other lessons he learned from the Pitaha. The Pitaha show me an approach to life that I had never imagined possible before I met them. They show me a level of contentment. They show me a level of uh, engagement with the world as it is around them immediately um, that is very healthy and has produced a high degree of happiness and satisfaction among the Pitaha, which has enriched my life and has challenged me to worry less about the future, worry less about the past, and focus more on being happy right now. Those values and the language that they speak, all these very interesting characteristics are part of a single whole. And when we lose something like that from the world, if when the Pitaha are gone, if we don't study them, and we don't study the other peoples that are like them, hidden in little pockets around the world, we lose a tremendous amount of knowledge about what it means to be a human being. What are the potentials of being a human being? We don't have to live in the warlike societies that we live in. We don't have to have some of the anxieties that we have. I see very little depression among the Pitaha. I see very little sadness. I see a very healthy, vibrant people that has a tremendous amount to teach us in Western society. And if we don't study these kinds of people, we just miss out on some of the greatest experiences of humanity. When uh, linguists and other academics attack your work and you, and when you start worrying about how your your published work will fare among scholars? Do you think, well, in the world of the Pitaha, it hardly matters at all? Yeah, I've thought this a lot about a number of things. Once I'm with the Pitaha, I am never so relaxed as when I'm with them. They relax me. They make me feel good. We have a good time talking about things that you might consider to be trivial. We don't talk about so-called great ideas, but we talk about people that we love, and we talk about things that we're doing. And I feel insulated from everything else that goes on. But when I come out of the Pitaha, this is something between me and them. Sometimes I tell jokes about the Pitaha that people worry that I might be a little prejudiced or something like this. But it's difficult to explain after 30 years that these are my family in many respects. And and I love them and they love me, I believe, uh, as much as, as we love anyone. Dan Everett. And tune in next week when I'll be presenting a new interview with Dan about his latest book, Language the Cultural Tool. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. Do visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. Amazonas moreno, tuas águas sagradas, são lindas estradas, são pontos de fadas, oh meu doce a canoa que passa, o voo da caça, as gaivotas cantando e te vão deixando o gosto de amar.